Hi, I'm R.A. Salvatore, Bob Salvatore. Been writing fantasy books for 25 years now and going strong, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's show, we chat with award-winning author and podcaster, Mer Lafferty. Now, she's been podcasting since 2004. Her podcast, I Should Be Writing, gives <laughs> interviews and tips that are extremely helpful to writers. I just love that name. I should be <laughs> writing, because that's basically what most writers are saying about 80% of the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> she tells us how she got started in podcasting and writing, and she gives great tips for writers, and we cover her work on Escape Pod and Pseudopod and much more. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get to the featured interview, I do want to let everyone know that I'll be making appearances at Miami Web Fest and at the University of New Orleans for my new book, Television on the Wild Wild Web. Or as I say it correctly, New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. <laughs> so please uh, bear with us as October we may have to skip a few weeks. Yeah. Now, if you're interested in making web series or learning how to use social media marketing or crowdfunding for your projects, then you might... Just want to click on over to Amazon to pick up a copy in print or on Kindle, because it is available now. Yes. Uh, not only would it help you, but it would help support the show. So, so yay! <laughs> and I'm sure my publisher would be happy to. Yes, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Now, one last thing before we get started with the interview. We do want to mention that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. And now our interview with writer Murr Lafferty. Well, welcome to the show, Murr. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, you've been podcasting, I think, since 2005. Four. Uh, four, really? Wow. 2004, yep. Even longer. And your podcast, I Should Be Writing, has won 2007 Parsec Award for Best Writing Podcast. And all along, you have been writing. You've been writing a number of short stories, books. So I guess first off, let's talk about what got you started in podcasting and what's what's got you sticking with it. Well, podcasting kind of began in August 2004, and a friend had told me about it in October. And I thought, you know, this is quite unoriginal. I thought, that's kind of cool. I would like to do that. <laughs> and so essentially, I just kind of racked my brain about what to do what to write or what to record on. And um, I came up with a, just a sort of a audio diary kind of thing that included a nonfiction geeky essay that I was writing. I was writing a lot of essays at the time. And so that's, I launched my first podcast in December. And then um, later that, later in 2005, there was only one writer's podcast out there. And that was uh, writing, uh, no, sorry. Uh, the Secrets, Secrets by uh, uh, Michael A. Stackpole. Was it mm-hmm. The Secrets? Now I'm thinking of that book. Yeah, I think so. I think it is. Anyway. Um, he always says it really dramatic. The Secrets. <laughs> yes, I know. And uh, he, I thought that I was learning a lot of things about writing and submission, but I could come at it from a beginner's level, or rather someone who knew enough to know that, say, what a rejection really meant, which means they don't want your story, not they hate you forever, or you're a crap writer and you'll never, ever, ever sell anything. And so I thought about doing a podcast based on those kinds of fears that beginning writers have. Because I was completely unpublished at the time, 
I started doing interviews with pros just to make sure I wasn't steering people completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And I've done a variety of shows ever since then, but I've kept up with um, I Should Be Writing since 2005. Great. And also, I should say that it is storming here. So if, uh, you know, to our audience, if they hear distortion or anything crazy or any uh, what sounds like bombs in the background, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just thunder, just thunder. So... <laughs> So how long have you been writing? How, how long? So you hadn't been published yet in 2004, but you had been writing already. How, how long had you been writing before then? Well, I, I've been writing since I was in elementary school, but um, I want to be a writer my whole life. But when I got to college, I found out that some people were better than me. And for some reason, I took that as a signal that I should stop, not I should work harder. So I actually quit and then, you know, graduated from college and got a job and got married and writing suddenly became something I would do someday and then met Richard Dansky and we became friends and he was suggesting you know that someday is never going to come you actually need to get started now if you know what's wrong with right now so I really feel like I've only been writing since 2001 2002 seriously mm-hmm. and yep. then so just I've been doing RPG stuff some magazine stuff, short stories, novels, things like that. And I really like your show because not only does it have good advice for writers, but I think you also offer a really personal touch to it where, I mean, you really talk about your personal struggles with writing and, and probably more so than any other podcast I listen to. And that really helps, I think, uh, if you're a writer listening to that and you're struggling that you know, you know, it's not just you or something. <laughs> you know, I always feel like I'm whining, but I hear that a lot <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's, it is helpful to people to know that, uh, things like being convinced that you're absolute crap or depression or things like that are quite frequent and normal. And just because you're feeling it doesn't mean you're all alone. Mm-hmm. Well, so many writers, they feel like when they're talking publicly, they have to be all smiles and and talk about how great everything is and, and such and how easy it was for them to write this and such. And and that can fool other people thinking that if they're struggling, that there must be something wrong with them. So, But your show you know, definitely lifts that veil. <laughs> yeah. I often also worry that it's going to tell people that, um, <laughs> that things don't get any better. <laughs> it's like I, it's like I always worry it's gonna be you know two sides of the same coin. It's like oh wow I'm not alone in feeling like this or oh gosh Murr is established and has published two professional books and she still feels this way. Does this mean this anxiety is never gonna go away? <laughs> Wait, so... you mean being a writer isn't easy? <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. I like you. <laughs> That's how you make a writer laugh. <laughs> So now, besides podcasting and, and, of course, writing, also online, you have been a host and editor of Escape Pod and Pseudopod at various times, uh, which are really, really cool, Very cool yeah. online uh, shows, free shows, where, where you can listen to some really cool stories. Can you tell our audience a little bit, about, a little bit more about those projects and how you got involved in them? Um, sure. I was friends with Steve Ely, who was the founder of Escape Artists, and uh, he was talking a long time ago about how he wanted to branch out and do some new stuff. And I sort of thought up the the name Pseudopod as a as a name for a horror podcast because it's kind of like a Cthulhu type tentacle 
And he liked it, and he asked me if I wanted to help edit it since I came up with the name. And I said, sure. So he got me and uh, Ben Phillips on as co-editors. And I did that for a little while. But at the time, I was I had taken on a new day job, and I was biting off a bit more than I could chew. So I had to step down. And then a couple of years later, uh, Escape Pod was looking for a new editor, and they approached me. And I said yes, and that was exciting, but then I had to step down from that again because I was doing too much. I got into grad school. And since then, I have um, I have graduated from grad school, so I've gone back to Escape Pod as a co-editor. Kind of uh, actually an a editor at large for Escape Artists right now. Cool. Great. And Escape Pod is the sci-fi one, and mm-hmm. Pseudopod's the horror one. So. Yes. And then there's a fantasy one, too. But Yes, Podcastle. Podcastle. I couldn't remember that one's name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, you mentioned that you went to school, went back to school to get your master's. You know, what was that experience like? Where'd you go and what's your degree in? Um, I went to University of Southern Maine, their uh, Stone Coast program, which is a low residency program, and I got uh, MFA in popular fiction. Very nice. Uh, so um, they have a great low residency program where you go to Maine twice a year for 10 days and then um you do lectures and workshops and then you go home and write for six months and they have their popular fiction program has all of the fiction teaches all the stuff about all the fiction that the other mfa programs turn their noses up at such as science fiction fantasy romance crime chiclet all that stuff yeah i remember um when marks and i were both we went to the same university and when you took the creative writing class we weren't allowed to write fiction I mean we weren't allowed to write fantasy science Mm -hmm. fiction horror or anything that took past and took place in the past anything that takes place in the future and you could only write about experiences that you personally experienced it's like well we're 19 like I mean how many of us have like really interesting life experiences you know I mean I'm sure there are some 19-year-olds in this world that do, but most, yes. most people, they, they're not as deep at that age as we tend to mm-hmm. think we are. And, and, and it just wasn't really encouraging very creative writing. Um, so, and, and then it was really embarrassing because they'd want you to read the stuff out loud. But then if you follow the rules and people were like, oh, so something like that really happened to her. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the most uncreative, creative writing class, I think in the history of the world. <laughs> wow. That sounds awful. It is terrible. It was, it was bad. I was in a, we were in different classes, but <laughs> in my classes, one woman read a, or one girl read a story about her character being raped and everybody got real quiet and they all just assumed that she must've been raped. And she's like, what? I don't understand. <laughs> well, and then oh, like God. I wrote this I wrote this poem about when I was in Croatia in uh, the late 90s and I was there for a while and and there was the dumbest thing in the world was to have a soccer match between the Croats and the Serbs but they did. Wow. <laughs> and I was in Croatia at the time and I mean like we're walking under overhangs of buildings cuz so many guns so many guns are getting fired in the air and people are tossing smoke bombs. This is what they do when they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> and so but I wrote that and at first he told I he was going to dock my grade because I was writing about something I couldn't possibly have any Ex- oh, no, personal personal knowledge of and I was like oh, oh, oh you want to bet <laughs> wow I told him what I was writing about and da, 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 and he was like oh <laughs> so yeah that was um so it sounds like if you want to do sci- sci-fi or go to uh, Maine <laughs> yeah go to Maine yeah. yeah 
Yeah. We're I know there are a couple of other um there are a couple of other popular fiction programs, but if you are a writer of anything fantastical or light or things that you don't normally see on the uh, Booker Prize list, might want to ch- look deeper into MFA programs and make sure they're not going to laugh you out of the uh, college. I have a question about that then. What is your opinion about this? Because I've always found this odd. Like like that, whenever you try to write in school, the 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 professors and the doctors, they all really kind of snub their nose at anything that's, you know, fantasy or sci-fi or romance. But then again, what you study in school before you get to college is Frankenstein, Dracula. Yep. Um, Shakespeare. You know, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, <laughs> and Shakespeare Poe. had a lot of ghosts and fantastical stuff. And, and, and then that's okay. But if it were written in the last hundred years, they just assume it's crap. Mm-hmm. How does that, I mean, how how does that in your mind work for them? <laughs> because I haven't figured it out yet. I don't know how it works for them. I um, just kind of ignore it at this point. Those, <laughs> It's not my audience. They're not my teachers. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I know that sounds kind of rude, but really I just think, what is the point of worrying about this? Because we didn't have, you'd think we, we uh, Stone Coast also had a fiction program and they were more literary fiction, even though they just called it fiction. And when they would get bitter, they would call themselves unpopular fiction <laughs> while we were popular fiction. And um, the poet said we were more fun to hang out with. I just want to say that because <laughs> they were all dark and, and, you know, dark and, and depressing and stuff. And we're just like spaceships, fairies, <laughs> yay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, speaking honestly, it's, it's a strange chasm that probably shouldn't be there. You know, it's like we we don't respect them because they think that having a middle-aged man stare out of a window and think about how he wants to have sex with his the TA that in the class he's teaching is literature. <laughs> While we're like, oh, please, give me 200 more pages on that. And <laughs> it's, don't it's be like, his teaching assistant. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, She's right. But, uh, and, you know, they say that's that's like high literature while... You know, things like Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie is just crap because it's science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Which Ancillary Justice is not crap. That's kind of my point. Just want to say that in case somebody wanted to, to grab that little uh, soundbite and yeah. screw <laughs> me with it. But, Hopefully um, it will get adjusted, yeah. But yeah, if someone's going to put that, de- I'm not a good arguer. I'm very bad at arguing. I'm very bad at confrontation. So if somebody's going to put down genre stuff, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have time for it. I don't have the time or the energy or the mental capacity to really argue. I'm just like, okay. And, you know, same for men who just like, oh, I don't read books by women. I'm not interested in the stories they have to tell. I'm like, okay. Of course, you could always come back with them that I don't have time to care about what you're thinking because yeah. unlike the serious writers, I'm making a living at it. <laughs> yeah, there's that. There's that. Unlike you but... so-called better ones, I actually make a living. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not technically yet, but I believe that is a lot of, uh, I, I believe on the whole, genre writers do tend to be able to support themselves a little better than a lot of literary, fi- literary fiction, unless it's endorsed by Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, and her, she's only got that one little cable channel now. We're all screwed. <laughs> we need an Oprah for yeah. sci-fi. Can, can Will Wheaton do that? <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I really want to be on covered on sword and laser, and but it hasn't happened yet. Oh, oh there's still right. time. 
Well, one more question about the master's degree. So, sure. So what prompted you to do that? Because I know a lot of people do it either because they're straight out of their earlier degree and that's just what they lead to when they're younger or they do it because they want to teach. Uh, what was your motivation to do that? Was it just simply to learn or is there or what other factors? You're, you're the first person to actually assume that I may have wanted to learn. I'm impressed. <laughs> Everyone else is just like, what do you want to do that for? I'm like, because I want to learn stuff. Uh, really, it was, I waited for a long time. I knew I wanted some sort of continued education, but I wasn't sure how. And I was weighing the MFA with uh, the Clarion Writers Workshop for a long time and just trying to do the whole pros and cons and um, eventually decided to go with the MFA because of, yes, it costs more, but the time away from my family would be uh, in 10-day chunks over several over two years instead of six weeks, one big six-week chunk. And um, also I've heard that, that it's such a boot camp-like atmosphere. A lot of times when you come home from Clarion, you can't write. You're just kind of stunned. And that's probably because your subconscious is kind of mulling over everything you learned. And when you start writing again, you perhaps end up like John Chu and you win a Hugo. So <laughs> yay, John Chu. But uh, I didn't want to do that. I, I, I'd already gotten a book deal and I, the idea of stopping writing scared the hell out of me. And I knew I didn't have to, but you know, and, and then another factor was I wanted to be in a larger group of writers because Yes, we laughed at the literary fiction people, but there were some really talented people that I got to spend time with. I met some amazing poets, some amazing nonfiction writers. And in our pop fiction group, there were crime writers and cozy writers and chick lit writers. And I learned a lot from them. So um, I wanted a larger variety of fellow students. And Clarion mainly focuses on short stories. And I don't write a lot of short stories these days. So while Clarion is a, a wonderful, wonderful program for science fiction and fantasy writers, sometimes it's best to look beyond at, at the other things it focuses on before you make your decision. And also, James Patrick Kelly is a friend of mine, and he has been a supporter of me for years and years. He was an early listener to the podcast, and we started corresponding, I think, in 2000, I guess early 2006, I'm not sure. But um, anyway, he's been a longtime supporter and he teaches there. And so he was one of the major factors I really wanted to go. And, you know, he'd been a friend and had given me advice, but I really wanted to go and officially learn under him. So Jim Kelly was a big part of it, too. That's great. Now, you did mention someone else winning an award, but we know that you won one, too, the John W. Campbell Award. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? About, mm -hmm. about sure. the award yeah, and the, what you won it for. Yeah, just like what you won it for and and how big it was and what you how did. Big it was. What was the physical size of the award? <laughs> like, what? Tell us all about it. People don't, not everybody knows about this. So no, no, it's fine. A little bit about it. The Campbell Award is, is a strange thing. Um, it is nominated by is nominated on the same ballot and voted on the same ballot and given out at the same award ceremony as the Hugos, but they always take great pains to point out that it is not a Hugo award. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's a great award. Congratulations. But it's, it's very, it's different because and a lot of people don't understand this, but the Campbell award is essentially for potential. They are looking at all the new writers and thinking who is, who are we going to see on the Hugo ballot in 10, 20 years? Who is going to add a lot to science fiction and fantasy? 
And a lot of people think you get awarded for one particular thing you wrote, but they just kind of look at what you've created so far and what they think you're going to create in the future. Because it looks like I was nominated for a 1,400-word short story that I wrote. I wasn't nominated for the short story. That short story called what we call the Campbell Clock. It caused that to start ticking because it was my first pro sale. So once I sold a story for the uh, an amount of money that these Campbell people decided was pro, that began my two-year slot of, okay, I'm eligible for the award in these two years, and that was the f- sale that got it started. But for me, a lot of people knew of the work that I'd been doing via podcast for years. So even though it looks like, why am I on the ballot for a 1,400-word story? People knew the stuff that I had done before. I had just gotten a book deal. So it was uh, it's really a reward for potential. And the year before I won, and this year, the year after I won, someone who was actually on the short story Hugo ballot was nominated for the Campbell, and they both won. It was a very tight ballot this year, but I am not, I was very torn between two people, but one of the people was the woman who won. And I'm thinking, you can't really argue with someone on the Hugo ballot having the best potential. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's right there. <laughs> she, she's got a lot of potential because she's already on the Hugo ballot. So um, it's, it's an interesting award and it's dear to my heart, not only because I want it, but I think it's, what's interesting is, I, I guess, you see this all over the place, but a lot of people who won the award, you don't hear from them very much, but a lot of people who lost the award are doing amazing things now, like George R. R. Martin and Lauren Bucus. Those are two big names that are uh, Campbell losers. So it's just the fact that, you know, they say being nominated is an honor and that's a cliche, but it really is. Yeah, definitely in good company. Exactly. Speaking about your writing, you do have a series of books out where you have two of them and your shambling series. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit more about your books? Sure. My books are uh, essentially, I like to call them Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy meets Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Because it's more of a story of a woman, a human woman who starts writing travel guides for monsters. So instead of you're just someone from the Midwest going to New York City, if you're a vampire going to New York City, you're going to need to know everything from where you can get food, where you can hunt, where you shouldn't hunt, where you can find a place to sleep that's light, tight, things like that. The first book is about New York City and also about my main character learning, holy crap, there are monsters in the world. How do I deal with this? Okay, I write a travel book for them. But um, she's hired because the vampire who started the publishing company had everybody on staff that he needed except for someone who actually knew how to put together a travel book. So that's why he decided to hire a human. And the second book just came out in March and that one takes our crew down to new Orleans to Mm -hmm. write a new travel book and get into trouble down there. I've been hearing a lot of good good things about those books. Yeah. Thank Um, you. And I'm curious about your choice of shambling. You don't hear that word very often. Yeah. (laughs) Where'd you come up with that title of, or that's part of the title? I just always thought that's the verb to describe how zombies walk. <laughs> so instead of a walking tour, you need a shambling tour because that's how slow you're going to go. Awesome. So you do a podcast about writing. You you are mm-hmm. a writer. You've won an award on writing. So let's talk more about writing. Okay. Really? Um, that's where you're going with that. I know. Surprise, right? Huh. We're going to do miming, but I... 
You can't do that over the radio. So. Yeah. I've been stuttering enough. Maybe I should try it this time around. One of those days. Well, first off, let's talk a little bit about your method of writing. I'm just kind of curious. You know, Are you someone that, that outlines your books in advance or writes by the seat of your pants? Or skirt. I, uh, I'm trying to be the kind of person to outline because I'm trying to throw my agent a whole bunch of book ideas so that she can try to sell them. But uh, I am mainly a seat of the pants writer. This is proven to me time and again, because I'm the kind of person that only think I, I, I think what's the metaphor you you've got the, the headlights on and you can see right in front of you and you always can see right in front of you, but you can't see, you know, way down the road. That's how I feel. Sometimes I don't know what's going to happen at the end of the chapter until I reach right before the end of the chapter. And then it just kind of comes to me. And so I really like that feeling. It makes me feel smart. <laughs> but when it comes to things like uh, writing an outline or trying to explain, say, if I'm trying to write a mystery and I try to do the whole clever thing of, well, then the detective figures everything out and then it's over. They're like, okay, well, how does that happen? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't written it yet. I've got a guy who's got a secret, and I just know it's going to affect the plot. My agent's like, "Okay, what's his secret?" I'm like, "I don't know. It'll come. It'll come to me." You know, I've 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 at least been writing long enough to to have the faith that it'll come to me, but uh, it's really hard for me to plot it or or outline. It's really really hard. It'd be a terrible like secret if you already knew it. I mean, come on. <laughs> exactly. I like her she promotes the idea that not always you don't have to be anal retentive about details to get started no so. no not at all i i i am mainly of the opinion that you write how you write i actually got very discouraged one time when i was reading ray bradbury's zen and the art of writing and his opinion was if you don't go to the typewriter every day with a song in your heart and a spring in your step and you love this work then don't do it and I'm like, well, crap. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I I like the stories I write, and I like having written, but writing sucks. <laughs> so clearly, I shouldn't be doing it. If Ray Brad, I mean, how can I argue with Ray Bradbury? I loved him, but yeah, he was. Um, he doesn't know what it's like for those of us who are mere mortals. I think. Yeah, yeah. that's that's. A <laughs> he really went good to point. a typewriter and cranked out in a matter of days Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. You know, I mean, he just was like, I went to the library and used a typewriter. Like, are you mm -hmm. kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I think there's some, like him. And... I go to the library and I mean to write, but then I walk past this aisle of books. I go, oh, that's yeah. like a good book. Oh, I've been meaning to check into that. Hour yeah. later, I haven't started writing a darn thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. It's, it's a tough thing. And, um, you know, from what I learned about that, I just basically say that you can't assume that there's one way to do things. Well, it's art. Because the minute you do that, yeah. exactly. The minute you think that, that you're going to find someone who says the way you do it is not the way to do it. And then you'll get, oh, God, I shouldn't be doing this. The only thing that's constant with writing is, you know, you have to write and it's a good idea to edit and you need to send it out. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm I don't trust anyone who says you have to outline or you have to go by the seat of your pants or I just don't trust anybody who gives those kind of absolute writing advices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most of my writing has been script writing, so it's kind of ingrained in me to, like, you know, come up with synopsis and then, like, in stages, synopsis and then outline and then... Yeah, well, you have that very logical kind of linear way of going about it. I'm just kind of like, oh, and what about this? <laughs> what if you did that? 
But see, then I get lost. So then I just sort of ramble. <laughs> so I wonder though, so if you write by see your pants, yes. which definitely is way more fun. Yes. Um, that is so much more fun to do <laughs> because you know, you're writing and it's like watching something. You don't know exactly what's going to happen next. So, so once you've done that first draft, does that require you to do a little bit more? Do you rewriting? sit it in a drawer for a couple well, of weeks yeah. or something, or do you just go straight into the rewrite? No, I usually put it in a drawer. I try to have the, uh, you know, there's the difference between the editor brain and the writer brain. And I, I try to keep my editor brain out of the picture when I uh, write. So I have to take a little while to get editor brain back and put the writer brain away and stop feeling all attached to my work and like it's my baby and stuff and actually approach it with a critical eye. And then I read through and I make a lot of notes and then I just start editing. Is there anything, that, like, for example, in your Shambling series, uh, when you went back to do the rewrite, was there anything major that got, that got changed around? You're, you're rewriting and you're like, what was I thinking? And you changed. Um, not, not entirely. There was a, there was a time when um, <laughs> at the end of one chapter, there's an announcement that a character's died. And then at the beginning of the next chapter, it's, okay, well, this person's missing. Let's go find them. <laughs> and no one caught it. <laughs> until like my final line edit where they're just like they send me the dire letter of if you have to change anything it's like six dollars a page so remember that and try not to make this edit cost us any more money blah 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 and i kind of just emailed my editor and i'm like yeah we're gonna have changes because <laughs> we kind of have to have this person stay dead yes it is a book with zombies but this is a zombie who's dead and usually dead zombies don't come back <laughs> so um there was that and then in the second book there's a, a, a minor character who's got kind of a major role in the latter half of the book, but he's kind of not there in the first half. And so my editor said I had to do some major rewrites to put him in the first half of the book. Right. So I made him stay with my main character, and then he took a bunch of Benadryl and fell asleep. <laughs> so I didn't have to – I had to have him in the scene, but he didn't do much. <laughs> so uh, – and it fit the plot, thank you very much. <laughs> but uh, – yeah, adding that other character was a lot of work. Oh, and I had to remove, I kind of had to blend two characters together of my editor's guidance in the first book. So there's a character who is no longer there, who uh, was there in the first drafts. Ah, okay. That's cool. Okay, so you do write by a seat your pants, but I'm assuming yep. that you you probably do a little bit of research before you... You're right. Uh, like locations like New York, New Orleans. And did you interview any actual vampires and zombies to get their opinion on vacationing there? <laughs> I don't take vampire and zombies opinions. I don't trust them. <laughs> um, I do. If I write in a real world, of course, I do a lot of research. Um, otherwise, I try not to because I know that research is a hole that you can fall into and never come out of. So oftentimes, if there's research needed, I'll write until I hit a wall where there's research needed, and then I'll look something up. And uh, I found that I have a bad habit of thinking, I need to research X, Y, and Z. And so I buy like seven books on X, Y, and Z, and then I look at the big book stack and go, oh, I'm overwhelmed, and then I don't read any of them. So I try not to do that and really just look up what I need when I need it. Uh -huh. That makes sense. It's very wise. So about writing in general, uh, you're writing too, but just in general for people writing, what do you think are some important aspects of character development that you think might be key uh, and sometimes are missing in stories? Um, everybody is the hero of their own story, <laughs> and a lot of people forget that. 
And so the villain's goal is to be evil and the uh, sidekick's goal, sidekick's only goals are to help the main character. And uh, that leads to some pretty weak writing because um, almost everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. for whatever reasons and they need to have those reasons but they think they're doing the right thing and you know supporting characters are helping the protagonist for their own reasons and something might come up to where they decide that reason's not good enough anymore actually in, in my book i realized that <laughs> essentially I, i'm i'm paraphrasing this to sound more more writerly i did not actually break the fourth wall here, but essentially these two main characters were just like, you know what? We're both the major protagonists of big stories and we really don't have the emotional capacity to support each other. So I don't think we should date. (laughs) So uh, I actually had people break up because both of their lives were so overwhelmed with their responsibilities and how they dealt with monsters and everything that they couldn't actually be there for the other one. That's what happened to Buffy and Angel. Yeah. Well, I, I was <laughs> yeah. going to say, I think sometimes what happens is writers and in television and in books and in movies, they always have this one key character, but they have all these other secondary characters and they're there just to help the main protagonist. And I think for a movie that can work out well, but if you have a series that goes anywhere from you know 12 to 22 or 23 episodes in a season... The fact that, you know, these people exist only to support this one person, it's kind of like, you know, that main protagonist is going to be kind of a dick. Because, you know, these people only exist in their world to serve them, you know, and if you don't start developing uh, yeah yes i was just thinking that that, but luckily they they pointed that out they're like you know what i don't want to be your sidekick people people die when they're your sidekick the funny thing is like sicky stackhouse was my least favorite character in true blood and in the tv show and then um I, i buffy the vampire slayer in that tv show she became my least favorite character pretty quickly because, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, these people do have lives of their own, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, they always seem to get sort of punished if they try to go off and do something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's where, you know, you can do that for a movie. But when you're watching these people that many hours, it's kind of like, wow, she's kind of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you have an sh- ensemble show like Lost where everybody's got their own stories. They all have their own stories, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I think that's the trick because, you know, <laughs> maybe you have a lead protagonist. You do have characters of different roles, but the trick is to create the illusion and personality of the characters. So they yeah, and ensemble, I think, usually works better, too. more balanced ensemble. But they're harder to write. Than oh, heck yeah. <laughs> you need teams of people who are going to write those. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about flaws? I think one trend, at least in television... Is like everybody's super duper flawed. Like they're I all think like... it's the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. There are no like real good guys anymore. I don't think. What's your opinion on that? Oh, I don't know. You've got a there, there's a phrase called uh, "save the cat," which I guess if you're doing script writing, you probably know mm-hmm. that phrase. But uh, it's it's first how you make an unlikable character likable. And I think I just started reading a book today where the main character is 
they don't have her save a cat for a while. <laughs> Not a while, but it's like well into the first chapter. I'm like, am I supposed to be identifying with you? Because you're really irritating. And um, just, it, it, she was very, very irritating. And, and I underst- I'm understanding that part of the, um, to put it rudely, part of the book is to, is, is designed to get her to unclench. But, uh, I needed a little bit more reason to like her right off. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, we start reading about this woman and you're like, okay, you're our protagonist. And then no, I don't, no, don't want to identify with you. <laughs> but you know, if, if I'd heard like later on, she, she's like eating Nicorette gum through the first couple of chapters. And finally it talks about how she feels about smoking. And I'm like, I can identify with that. That <laughs> is a vice. And I quit smoking years and years ago. And yet it's still, I can still think about it and I can identify with that. But um, I don't know. And I'm not saying smoking is a flaw, but that's one thing that she's trying to get over. I think a lot of people, they hear about something that works. And so they take it to an extreme. Mm -hmm. So, oh, people want flawed characters. We'll give you incredible flaws. (laughs) No, I don't want an asshole. Come on. (laughs) It is kind of hard to keep reading and keep turning that page when you're you know and for me it's not just with books it's with with books and any kind of entertainment television Uh or movies it's just kind of like if i don't like any of these people why am i bothering yeah you know and that has killed so many books and tv shows for me because i'm like you don't understand a giant asteroid could come down and kill them all and i won't care i don't like them Which that might be more of a TV trend, right? A little now. bit more, because I'm not sure if that's really a book trend. Not right as now. much in the books I've been reading lately, but yeah. Now that I think about it, but uh, but I'm sure there's some books like that. I, there are, yeah. <laughs> What's interesting, like in filmmaking, there's independent filmmaking, web series creation has really taken off because of technology and the internet, and mm-hmm. and but in the the book world, it's it's all about self publishing and ebooks um, have really taken off. Um, so I was wondering what your what your feelings or views on self publishing are, and well, the concept that ebooks will threaten to kill print books will kill the bookstore. So no, I I don't think so. It's um, okay. Well, first, I'm very bad at doing the kind of thing of of uh, anticipating how things like technologies will affect the future. I'm extremely bad at it. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Um, secondly, I'm a hybrid author. I'll, I self-publish some stuff and I am published with Orbit. And I think that having your eggs in a whole lot of baskets is a very good thing, especially if you're writing something that perhaps your editor doesn't want, but you believe in, or, you know, something will resonate with your fans, but the editor doesn't want to spend money on it. Um, I think that, that, you know, self-publishing is a great way to go about doing that. I, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's it's really hard to say because, as I mentioned, I'm very bad at this. I would not have anticipated how much cellular phones would hurt the watch industry. But I realized I know one person who wears a watch now. One. <laughs> and I always look at her and I'm thinking, what's that thing on your wrist? <laughs> Why do you have a relic on you? Yeah. So. Um, and just wait until the iTime or whatever it's called comes out. The, the, the iPhone equivalent phone. of the watch. Yeah. Yes, I want a smartwatch, but I'm not sure if I want to go Apple, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, Essentially, 
things are going to change. And if people try to keep up with it, I think that they'll survive. And if they don't, that's a problem. I really like, I don't even know how it works on the business end, but I really like that Kobo has been working with independent bookstores. So I can actually buy an ebook through my local bookstore and have them get some money, but I get an ebook. Um, I think that was a, a, a brilliant move, but I, I just think things are changing and the people who are completely balking are going to be the oaks that fall during the tornado while the people who are bending where they can are going to be the willows that don't. How's that for poetry? Ooh, I <laughs> did like learn it. something. <laughs> She's putting that master's degree to work. That's right. You know it. <laughs> now I'm curious about self-publishing. Is there, I know I've heard of cases where people have self-published and they get a book deal out of that, that self-published book. Um, at least there's been some cases of that. Is that something, is there anything, okay, let me reword this question, actually. Let me merge this hey, with another my question. Hey, contagious. Let me merge this with another question, because I know I know I was going to ask you next, and they're, they kind of link together. So, okay. um, now I know you've, exp- you've used podcasting to tell your stories uh, through audio podcasting by reading your stories. Mm-hmm. And also, um, there have been people... Plenty of people out there I've heard of before who've who've also done a blogging equivalent for their stories. So that, those combined with self-publishing, you know, what is um, what's the benefits of doing those things, and what's what's the dangers? Is there ever a time where you've done that and the publisher is going to be like, eh, you know, I can't touch that because it's it's devalued now, or or does it just not matter if it's just popular? They're gonna they're gonna buy it no matter what. Um, I'm not. Oh, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I think some people trust that it, it's really hard to measure because, you know, marketing is difficult to measure. And if sales are what they want it to be, they can point to the marketing. And if they're not what they want it to be, then maybe they won't point to the marketing or maybe they'll point to the marketing and say that failed. But I consider podcasting is essentially marketing first. And, you know, this makes it sound like I planned it this way and I didn't. But first, I built my audience via podcasting. So I was able to go to my editor with a book in hand and an audience in the other hand and say, hey, I have people who are interested in this book who might buy it, and here's the book. And I know that that influenced them a little bit. They still had to like the book, of course. I don't know. I think we're – Cory Doctor is doing okay, and he gives away all ebooks, copies of his books. And I'm still podcasting and still building an audience. So it's I think it's still hard to say, actually. Mm-hmm. I know that's not helping at all, but um, <laughs> sorry. It's a transition phase right now that everyone's going through. Exactly. Do you still make or, or potentially make audiobook versions of your books, or, or do you feel like you already did that with the podcast? Well, no. We well for uh, the Shambling series, I did a professional audiobook, went to a, a studio and everything, and then the, the audio producer sent me the files to then later podcast which actually ghost train to new orleans is supposed to be coming out in podcast form in a couple of weeks so i need to probably got contact them <laughs> <laughs> i'm curious you said that you know you uh you started podcasting your book first and then approached the publisher with that well no um, not no well not the shambling series well not the shambling whatever no whatever was before then um right so for that project I'm curious, since it wasn't already published yet, did you take any? Did you make any changes before it got published based on feedback from readers? Like, did you experiment with that at all? Not really. I'm. This makes me sound like a big jerk, but honestly, 
I don't like taking a lot of reader input. And my reason why is there are, you know, hundreds, thousands, if I'm lucky, of people, and they're all going to have an opinion. Yeah. I like when a work is in progress and I have, say, five, eight people reading it, those are opinions that I can listen to and take into account and appreciate. Whereas when it's already out, whether it be on the shelves or in the podcast or on the ebook, when there are thousands of people who have opinions and, you know, tens or a couple hundred email me with them, it's overwhelming. And I don't know which one to listen to unless someone says, you know, like I'm being blatantly wrong or offensive in a certain case. I don't really take a lot into account. It makes well, me feel like a big jerk to say that out loud, but it's true. Well, no, because you can't fall into that trap of trying to please everybody. Yeah. Because it's not possible. Because, you know, you'll do one thing. If there's 100 different people, there's going to be 100 different opinions. Or maybe half of them love one idea and the other half hate it. And I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Yep. That's what's kind of neat about the book process because you normally get an editor to help you with that and guide you along. Yeah, if you find someone that you trust whose opinion that, you know, you trust, that's one thing. But you can't just like sort of randomly pull the electorate and yes. <laughs> get a, exactly and just get you know a way to go <laughs> yeah um crowdsourcing your stories can be rough <laughs> so could you tell us about any projects in the works coming down the pipeline that you have that you feel comfortable talking about actually i can't i'm between contracts now so right now i'm working on five different books or series to pitch to different publishers. So they're all very different. And I don't know which one of them will be, people will be interested in. So I have no idea. You know, hopefully I'll be working on a book in a month or two, but I don't know which one. Oh, cool. Well, actually, I have a question. Um, yep. You have a, a lot of this, you are doing, obviously, a lot of writing. How, how do you go about that for, I mean, we know about your creative process, but just in general, do you like, get up in the morning and do this and then a lot, so many hours a day for writing. Do you, do you set aside a certain amount of time? Like in the evening, do you write on the weekend or do you just like, you get an idea and you have to get it out. So you just like throw yourself into it for, you know, as long as you can. Um, everybody kind of has a different process. So it's kind of wondering what yours was. I wish I had a standard process. Really. <laughs> I have a, I have to write at least 250 words every single day. And if I get it done early, I feel proud of myself. But then at night, I wonder, I still have a gut feeling of, oh, God, I have to write today. Because oftentimes, I'll be doing things and it'll be nighttime and I'll be like, oh, God, I have to write today. <laughs> um, I've been doing this for a while now because after my book came out, I have, I've been doing a couple of freelance projects. But as I said, I don't have a book contract. So when I have a book contract, I do more writing during the day and usually try to get about a thousand words a day. But right now I'm just trying to maintain consistency and hit 250 words a day. Is it hard to write at home? Do you have a certain area that you set aside? Do you go somewhere else and kind of No, I really try not. I mean, yes, it's hard to write at home because I work from home and I'm here all the time and right. things like laundry and dishes and dogs and phone and and all that can be distracting. And I find if I do go somewhere, I may focus a little bit better. But if I go to a coffee shop, that costs money. And if I go to the library, that needs pants. Pants are needed at the coffee shop too. But I I usually consider that coffee shop, I guess it's, it's, uh, 
the money's the bigger thing. So if I, I mean, if I went to a coffee shop every single day, that would get really expensive. So I usually just write at home also because of laziness. So, and I try to be able to write anywhere and any time because I don't want to be tied to any sort of ritual that can be taken away from me. That's a good point. Yeah. I really wish I could settle down to a process, but I haven't been able to yet. <laughs> well, it's working for you. So I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> well, from my book, I got, I didn't get into that until like, halfway through and and really the deadline was what made me do He's that like oh yes. shit, <laughs> the deadline will do that there's a deadline <laughs> okay so that does remind me of another question it would be i would like to ask you real quick uh there's different software out there that people can use i was wondering what you write with and uh if you've ever tried something like scrivener or not oh, i love scrivener oh I'm definite scrivener convert so i i endorse it to everybody i know um, I recently picked up Storyist, which is supposed to be like Scrivener on the iPad. Um, I don't know if it's the UI or not having a mouse in my hand or what, but I'm not. I understand it's got a lot of tools, but I don't find myself wanting to use them. I just kind of open it up because it's a word processor and start typing. So mm-hmm. haven't been able to really get a lot out of that. But Scrivener, yes. Okay, great. Cool. Uh, yeah, I recently got Scrivener, so I'm going to try it out and see. Those, I, I always get scared of new. I suck at them all until I use them. And <laughs> she likes to write it, write it. In, I actually uh, do write pen and paper. Yeah. Still, some. Wow. Well, to get started, for some reason my my brain doesn't always work until I get a pen and. That's how I have to brainstorm and write ideas. Yeah, I write notes down like that. <clears throat> I'm kicking it old school. Yeah. <laughs> hey, when the lights go out, y'all are gonna be lost. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it's been great speaking with you. And uh, but before we go, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I'm at merverse.com. That's the universe that has all of my stuff. That's M-U-R-verse. Yes. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, with hey us. guys. This was fun. This is Simon R. Green. I write science fiction and fantasy series. I think trilogies are for wimps. I've done 12 books and at least three series. There's a film coming out, Judas Ghost, and there are short stories and magazines and anthologies all over the place. You'll find me somewhere. And you're listening to Genre Entertainment. Well, thanks to Amira for taking the time to chat with us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Coming up soon in future episodes, we'll be talking to consultant and writer Lori Shear about her new book, The Writer's Advantage, A Toolkit for Mastering Your Genre. Mm-hmm. We'll also be chatting with Jason Fisher, the COO of Frostbite Pictures, which works on a number of great web series like Divine, After, and many more. Yes. Now, before we go, we do want to remind you that you can keep track of us on our Genretainment Facebook page, Marks' Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at genretainment.com, or all of the shows on scifipostradio.com. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next next time. time. Bad monkey.